St. Jose Maria Escriva has one of the most impactful quotes about infertility, I think. God in his providence has two ways of blessing marriages, one by giving them children, and the other, sometimes because he loves them so much, by not giving them children. I don't know which is the better blessing. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today we're talking about infertility. There are a lot of Catholic couples dealing with this cross, and because it's so sensitive, they often suffer in silence. We're going to walk the journey with four couples and talk about how the church could do more to support them. We're going to begin with a woman who has known that she would not be able to have children since she was in the third grade. I'm Sarah family. Sarah has a genetic disorder called Turner's syndrome. Essentially, I don't produce and make my own hormones the way that everyone else does. The hallmark of Turner's syndrome is sterility. The chances of fertility are 0.01%. In third grade, how do you process this information? I was really confused. I had no idea what was going on. It was bizarre. I can remember that I was not happy about all of the blood work and stuff that had to be done. I didn't really understand it at all, being nine, almost ten. Sarah started to feel self-conscious about her infertility in high school. It definitely wasn't something that anyone of my peers could really grasp or understand. It kind of kept it to myself. It definitely did make me shy about engaging in dating and putting myself out there. And she had some bad experiences telling men that she dated. We're calling this one Bob. Bob and I were talking for a while and decided to go out on a date. I felt like he was one of those really into it Catholics, like he had a lot of gusto and what do you think about this and what do you think about that and how do you feel about this? He just was asking a lot of questions about kids. So we had that discussion, and later that evening, he called, and I could hear hear that he was emotional over the phone. He was just very torn up, and he just didn't know if he could be with somebody that couldn't have kids. I was just like, hey, you know, we we went on a few dates. This really isn't anything to get so worked up about. I've had a couple other instances where it's just sharing this information and just having people kind of stare at me. It was just really, 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 really awkward. But in every relationship Sarah had, she knew that the moment would come. Meet Tom. Tom family. Tom was not like Bob. I don't actually remember her exact words, but I remember feeling sad. I liked this girl. I liked her a lot. And either things are going to work out and I marry her, or they're not. And if they're not, then this detail isn't going to make any difference. So if we are going to be together... Obviously, I will love her, and though it's sad that we don't get to participate in having our love physically create another human being, but we will be able to help somebody else who can't handle a kid at that moment, for whatever reason. The infertility was sad to Tom, but it wasn't this dramatic thing. 
no, I did not have to go off and take three days and think about it on the top of some mountain and ask the wise guy at the top of it. I could only be silent for so long before she would start freaking out. So I made sure that I spoke up quickly, and I believe my actual words were, that sucks. Yeah. Sarah had gone to therapy at various points in her life as she grew and processed her infertility. Her parents and doctors had encouraged this because they recognized that Sarah needed to go through the grief process. You know, my parents and my doctors found it important for me to have therapy when I was younger to kind of cope with being different. After Sarah and Tom got married, this grief could be intense. We were going to a baby shower, and Tom and I had gone out shopping. I kind of had a meltdown in Babies Are Us, and Tom was like, oh my gosh, what do I do, what do I do? And I was just crying because it was all this baby stuff around. I always tried to avoid the baby aisle in Target because I'd just start crying. There was a while that Sarah was banned from the baby aisle in Target. Yeah. (laughs) Sarah is careful to note that what she was feeling when her friends got pregnant was more sadness than jealousy. I mean, I'd be lying if I said that there weren't moments of jealousy, but I think overwhelmingly it's more of just a sadness. I want to be a part of this too. Unfortunately, like many infertile women, Sarah has had some really negative experiences with doctors. Just the sheer frustration of not feeling heard as a person with infertility. And I think being Catholic even more so, shortly after we were married, It was time for my annual women's health exam. The doctor hands me a booklet on birth control. She was saying, well, go ahead and look through and tell me, you know, if there's something that, and I'm just like, I'm not interested. And if I could have a baby, I would. And it's really frustrating that you're showing me all this. And I believe her exact words were, well, sometimes you have to just put religion to the side. And I remember I got angry and I told her, Alyssa, I can't have a baby. You see that in my chart. And she's looking at me like I have lobsters coming out of my ears or something. It actually gets worse, if you can believe it. She asked to do a pregnancy test. And at this point, I was just so flustered. So I walked out into the lobby She opened the door and was like, well, good news. And I'm looking and I'm sitting here in these room full of women. She goes, but you're not pregnant. And I just remember I just lost it in this doctor's office. Contrast this with a good doctor. I think I cried one of the first times I actually went into a doctor and she just kind of asked me, like, how are you doing? How are you coping with everything? Sarah sees it as her personal mission to challenge healthcare providers to listen to women. Infertility psychologically hurts people. I think that they're just in such a business of making sure, you know, they're promoting women's health, that they forget the other flip side, which is, what about people who are infertile and what do they actually want? Tom talks about how the cross of infertility has helped him and Sarah to learn how to pray together. It's certainly good for getting comfortable praying with each other. That's something that we're very good at. If Sarah's having a really tough day, that is a moment that I need to pray with my wife. Because there's nothing that I can say that would be the truth that would change how things are right now. The only thing that I can do is offer a prayer for peace and just try to rely on God every single day 
that has been a big help to us in our relationship. Unlike Tom and Sarah, most couples don't know that they are going to experience infertility. Here are the Chapmans. My name is Emily Simpson Chapman. My name is Chris Chapman, and I've been married to Emily for just over 20 months now. Emily and Chris met later in life, but there was every reason to hope that they would conceive. I was 41 when we got married, and Chris was 47. We both knew that God was probably not going to be giving us the six or seven kids that I had dreamed about, but we were hoping, we were hoping for a few. I had seen some doctors in advance, some nephrotechnology doctors, just because I wanted to know if everything looked good, if there was anything I could be doing before we got married to maximize my fertility. And the doctors were very optimistic. They still keep saying everything looks great. So we had every reason to expect getting married that we would conceive and hopefully conceive quickly. There's actually a sort of grieving process that single women go through as they get older. You watch those birthdays come and go. 25 comes and goes. 30 comes and goes. 35 comes and goes. It's a slow letting go of your plans because my vision was always getting married around 25, having a large family, homeschooling, and every birthday that passed that I wasn't married and there wasn't a baby was a death knell to those plans. I was realizing God had a different life plan in store for me than I was necessarily wanting or planning on myself. But grieving a hypothetical child is obviously not the same as grieving infertility in marriage. So when you're wanting to be married, just wanting to have a baby any way you possibly can, and there's no immediate possibility of that, it's such frustration. <laughs> it's frustration with your state in life. It's frustration with God. It's frustration with men. And then when you're trying to conceive and you're not, it's frustration with your body. <laughs> your body is is mm. failing you. So there's not a person out there who's failing you. It's your body, and you don't know why it's not doing what it was meant to do. It's a daily thing. You're tracking your cycle. You're taking the vitamins. You're trying to time marital relations. You're managing all of these things, and you can't get away from it. It's an all-consuming cross. And it's a cyclical thing. Every month, there's a chance, and then it's gone. Following the woman's cycle, it becomes fairly intense with hope each month being dashed with the non-child, and that gets more intense every month. It is a, it is a unique cross in that way, just the sort of the rhythm of it. We had all these hormones going on at the same time you find out you're not pregnant. I was like, seriously, God, could you not have come up with a better way to do this? You have to tell me I'm not pregnant at the time of the month that I'm the most emotional and reactive. And the baby desired is one who looks like you and your spouse. Once you're married, it suddenly the baby takes on a face. <laughs> and you want to see what does our baby look like? I love this man. I want to see our love incarnate in a person. I want to see a baby who maybe has his hair and my eyes. That's what a child is. A child is the incarnation of their parents' love. And to not be able to see your love incarnate in that specific way, it's a loss. For a woman experiencing infertility, the temptation is to seek control over the situation and over her body. Emily had already fought this kind of temptation when she struggled with anorexia years earlier. 
one of the things that I've written about is my struggle with anorexia. I've talked about how the Eucharist and John Paul II's Theology of the Body really helped me overcome that. And one of the memories that I'll often share is when I was at a gym one day doing some exercise or other that I hated. I used to have the mantra I didn't even realize was going through my head, but it was, I have to control my body. I have to control my body. One day in the gym, I was doing this after I'd been reading John Paul II's Theology of the Body, and another phrase popped into my head to counteract that, and that was, I have to care for my body. That stopped me cold <laughs> dead in my tracks. It's like, oh, right. The body is a gift, not a problem. You control a problem. You care for a gift. And that was very instrumental in my healing. Well, fast forward 17 years, and I was finding myself getting sucked into the same mentality of, I have to control my body. I have to take these vitamins. I have to take these hormones. I have to eat these foods and not these foods and see this doctor. And there's a real mechanization of the body that comes in when you're trying to deal with infertility. Your body is the problem. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. That's not really how God calls us to see the body. And what I've had to do is have a mental shift in saying, no, God is calling me to care for my body. I need to be nourishing it. I need to be exercising it. But I can't just take X number of vitamins and eat Y number of foods and a baby will, you know, magically be born for me like Athena from the head of Zeus. It doesn't work that way. Babies are gifts. You can't control gifts. You can receive gifts. Chris points out that controlling the situation is what resorting to in vitro fertilization, IVF, seeks to do. The temptation for in vitro fertilization and some of the other immoral ways of trying to go about a child stems from that very legitimate grieving where, you know, we're going to make this happen as opposed to the gift. And obviously the church you know, recognizes that there are all kinds of good technologies out there to try to make the body do what it is meant to do. But there are immoral ways of doing it where you steps outside of God's providence, which includes the brokenness of our bodies and a fallen world where things don't always work. And it is an invitation to get on our knees and to really grow closer to Christ and to pray about it and to ask for the gift of the child. But in asking for the gift of the child, we're also asking for the grace to be pregnant with God's will, to bear that however it is. Emily sees a NAPRO doctor. This is an OBGYN who has gone through extra training in the science of healing fertility. Often, NAPRO doctors are able to discern where the problem is and how to treat it. It is totally in line with Catholic teaching. I think one of the beautiful things about NAPRO technology is that its focus is healing the body. Whereas in vitro fertilization and IUI, they don't heal the body, they override the body. So for me, NAPRO has been a great way to say, okay, even if you know, we haven't conceived through NAPRO, I'm healthier because of this. The temptation to control is real and pressing. I get why couples pursue IVF or IUI. There was a day last September, we were in a chapel, and I was just broken that month. I had had such high hopes, and I was just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. I felt like Hannah. I would have done anything in that moment if I didn't know how wrong IVF was. I was like, oh, curse all this formation I have. I know too much. I wish I didn't know so much. Because that desire for a baby is so strong. You want that child, and you would do anything for that child. And so few Catholics have that formation. So I totally get why the average Catholic woman 
wouldn't even get why it was a problem, even if she knew kind of sort of that the church didn't like it. So Emily finds support from friends and an online community of women who experience infertility. Everyone's willingness to share their stories with me was a source of strength I could draw on because I could know, okay, I'm not alone in this. I'm not crazy. This isn't wrong that I'm feeling this way. This is natural. I know for most of this episode, I have been focusing on women's stories, but there's a reason for that. The woman bears the cross of infertility, I think, more deeply or strongly than the man does. I obviously can't speak for every man. Maybe uh, maybe I'm shallow and callous. I don't know. But I mean, obviously, I, I would like a child. I want a child. But I don't feel it in the same way that Emily does. It educates the man about how precious life is to her tears or something I need to respond to and listen to and and care for her. So, I mean, I think, you know, the masculine and the feminine there are obviously meant to work together. The creation of life is such an interior act for women. Men can generate thousands of children and never know and not have anything to do with it. So I think motherhood mm-hmm. is, it's a profound part of what it means to be a woman. It's sort of the synchronon. Like that's what women do, whether it's mothering with our bodies, mothering with our baby, mothering with our spirits. And everything in us is oriented towards motherhood, towards nourishing and nurturing life. And so that intrinsicness to your body makes it for women a very pressing cross. Now, I know there are men who really grieve not being able to have children, and some men feel it in a different and deeper way than even their wives do. So I don't want to dismiss some men. But I do think for the woman, it's so interior. And we're the ones who have to live with the cycle. We know when we're fertile. We know during that two-week wait how many more days we're waiting. We know once we start spotting that our hopes have been dashed again that month. This isn't to say that men don't suffer when their marriages have to bear the cross of infertility. It's just different. They were studying depression and fertility. Women on the whole are much more depressed about fertility than men. But when the man knows for certain that it's his problems, that they're not conceiving, his depression levels are the same as the woman's. Infertile couples are also in the shadows today in part because children are seen by our larger society as an option. I just got my beard shaved off yesterday, so I was in a barbershop. There was a gentleman next to me who was four years old, and he, I was listening to the conversation. It was hard not to. But he's just gotten married. He married a doctor, and they're not going to have children. Having a child is, is very much seen as a choice. So I think infertility has faded into the background in some ways because a lot of people just look, hey, they're probably not deciding to have children. In fact, why would you have children? The one barber was applauding him for how wise he was and how much disposable income they're going to have and basically what a great life you're going to have without children. You know, I think that rears its head in lots of ways. This is why it's an important witness to be open about infertility. I think it's important for women to not be ashamed of their grief and to share their story, to share that they're struggling, to share that they want to have children. Even that is a witness. You never know first off, who else is struggling, who else needs to hear that story, or who can help you carry that grief. In this culture where so many people are very happily not having children and don't see children as a precious good, I think it's a witness to say we want this good and it hurts that we don't have it. I think that's the struggle for everybody is to see and believe in the meaning of suffering, to take it to Christ and to share it and to know that we're made to be fruitful. Even if at the end of the day, you know, if we can't have children 
That suffering is meaningful and will bear fruit. Only in the mystery of God's providence do we know why. This couple has 12 children, and this couple that desires to have children has no children, but all of that works together, and it's all meaningful to God, and so it should, it's meaningful to us. Our next couple, Jen and Mark Crowley, started a ministry for couples experiencing infertility in their area in 2011. It's called Sarah's Hope and Abraham's Promise. Sarah's Hope and Abraham's Promise offers spiritual support to couples struggling with infertility and or pregnancy loss, as well as to adoptive families. We do retreats and prayer services, and we just had our first adoption celebration mass and support groups, and we're writing curriculum and Bible studies, and we have a big vision. (laughs) The support groups are single sex. We feel for our actual support groups that meet on a monthly basis, we thought it would be better to separate the men and the women just because of the sensitivity of issues that come up with what happens with the woman's body, as well as even sometimes marital issues. Because infertility can cause a big strain on marriage, and we wanted to provide a safe place for people to be able to talk about that. But for our retreats and our prayer services and our masses, the couples come together. Couples can go through many emotions and struggles as they face infertility. Something that we've learned is that a lot of the couples struggle with forgiveness, forgiveness of themselves, forgiveness of their spouses. And so we do a marriage blessing, and we talk a lot about forgiveness. Fertility and pregnancy loss can really be a strain on marriage, and you can feel a lot of guilt. Some people say they feel like it's all their fault, and they feel bad that their spouse is having to deal with that. When in reality, I mean, that's the beauty of, you know, strengthening your marriage and just continuing to remember that you can be fruitful in your marriage, whether or not you ever conceive and bear children. And this pain doesn't go away, even if you are called to adopt and receive the gift of a child or children in that way. Once you adopt a child, I also feel that people are like, oh, good, you don't struggle with your infertility. You're not upset anymore. Now you have kids. And it's like, no, again, adoption is, it can be tied in with infertility, but it doesn't have to be. And so you still have those feelings that can come up, obviously, with your infertility, even, even once you have adopted. And if you want to know what a pet peeve phrase is for infertile couples, it's this. Just relax. Yeah, when people do say that, I'm like, I actually have a medical condition. It's not just like this thing in my head. Like, there's a there's medical reason why I'm not able to get pregnant. So, actually, adoption could not heal that medical condition of mine. <laughs> Our final witness is one of my coworkers at the USCCB. Hi, I'm Connie Poulos. I am the digital media specialist with the communications department at the USCCB. I've been married for five years, just about. I have been dealing with permanent infertility. Connie started a blog called Tales from the Valley. In the blog, she processed her permanent infertility and her questions about it. What does it mean to be a woman? Am I still a woman if I can't bear children? Is my marriage valid? All of those questions were things that I spent a lot of time thinking about, especially being a teenager when I found out which is already a pivotal time in your life anyways. I asked Connie to share some of the unhelpful things that well-meaning people say. It helps not to say, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Because chances are, if they've gotten to the point where they're open about it, they have tried it. (laughs) Unless they specifically ask, they're not asking for treatment ideas. They're asking for your compassion. They want to be heard. They want you to, you know, say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry you're going through this. I will pray for you. 
one thing that's not helpful is to say, oh, don't worry, you will have a baby. Because it's not always true. It's not always true. So what can you say when someone confides in you about their experience of infertility? You could say, let me pray for you. And you can even say, is there something particular you'd like me to pray? Connie has known since she was 16 that she wouldn't be able to have children. Just like Sarah from the beginning of the show, she had to choose the time to tell the man that she was dating. We were watching a football game, and it was during a commercial. And he knew I was tired. I had told him that I didn't sleep the night before. I didn't tell him why. I was like, hey, you know how I really like kids? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to be able to have any. And I found out at 16 that I was born without a uterus. And right away, his initial response was really like one of caring and compassion for me. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. How are you? Is that why you're so tired <laughs> today? You were there, you didn't sleep about that. How many kids do you want to adopt? <laughs> and not to say it hasn't been difficult for him, but there had been people in my past who, who had made comments like, oh, that's going to be a huge sacrifice for whoever marries you, which is very incompassionate to say. <laughs> but I mentioned this to my now husband, and he said, you are such an amazing person, and I love you, and it would be the greatest blessing in the world to marry you. Needless to say, he had my heart at that moment. <laughs> Connie also points out that she and James are not the only ones who have to grieve. There is such a thing as grandparent infertility grief. It's something my own parents had to go through when they found out about me. But Connie sees God's hand in this cross. One of the beautiful things that God brings out of this cross is that it not only teaches you, but all the people who are close to you to really trust, to realize that, okay, God is the author of life. My life's in his hands. He has a plan. And there's a lot of tears involved, but if you're willing to just be there and to be open and to let him lead you, then it's all going to be okay. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have the life you thought you'd have, but it's not really so much about here in this life. It's about heaven. And I think learning to come to grips with that and learning to accept that and learning to trust that, that God made you. He didn't make a mistake. <laughs> And he grieves with you and for you, too. And to know that he is with you. If you could say that there's a purpose for infertility or a goal in dealing with this cross, that's probably the biggest one. That's one of the best outcomes that you can get from this. Now that you've met all the people in the episode, we're going to turn to what the church can do to help. Number one, the worst day for these women at church is... Mother's Day! Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Okay, so let's talk about Mother's Day. Here's Emily. Mother's Day is a huge problem for women who are struggling with infertility, for single women who are longing to be married. It's important to honor mothers. We want to honor mothers. But it's also important to find a way to do it that's not causing grief to the women in your congregation who are mourning the fact that they are not mothers or that they lost their mother or they have lost a child. There's so much grief surrounding motherhood. The only time I've ever felt like I was being wounded in church has been on Mother's Day. It's when you're sitting there mourning the fact that your period came this morning or another year has come and gone and there's no husband on the horizon and you want to go to God for that comfort. You want to feel the graces of the sacrament soothing your soul and instead you're just being reminded that not you, not this year. And Jen. It was a Mother's Day blessing, and it was 
it just hurt my heart so much. So I actually had written a letter and I mailed it to the pastor at the church and kind of shared with him what I experienced that day. And it was amazing. He emailed me back that same day and he was so kind and so compassionate. And we had a very fruitful conversation about it. And so something that we have tried to do in our ministries is in our diocese, we'll send out an example prayer and even include prayers of the faithful that can include all women and all men, godfathers, aunts, uncles, parental figure of any kind, a role model in any child's life. So that's something we try to encourage parishes to do because we know how painful it can be. And Connie. One of the ways that churches do a good job of handling this, not singling out mothers to stand. Sometimes it's, you know, everybody stand for the final blessing and maybe it includes something about motherhood, but not necessarily always physical motherhood. At my parish last year, they did a great job. They read a blessing. It was very long, but it was so beautiful, and it had to do with everything for people who had lost mothers, for people who had difficult relationships with their mothers, for mothers who had um, who had lost children, for aunts, <laughs> for grandmothers, for women who have been motherly influences on people. It was just beautiful. In fact, the whole congregation loved it. And afterwards, I, I ran back and gave the pastor a big hug <laughs> and thanked him for doing that because it was so meaningful for everybody. And it was also a way to acknowledge and celebrate the wider implications of motherhood. So that's a first step, church. Next, help couples to find each other. Here's Jen. What I'm most proud of personally is really just the fellowship and the connections and the community of support that it provides for these couples. Because just from my own experience, I know how isolating and how lonely you can feel going through infertility. You don't think that there's anyone else out there who's going through what you're going through. And everyone around you is always pregnant and can just feel so alone. That's just something that through our ministry, we've tried to connect people. And Connie. I mean, it is a very personal issue. You know, not everybody's comfortable talking about this. I think a lot of people don't know that they're going to be dealing with it. They probably didn't expect it. And actually, a lot of studies have shown one in six couples deals with this. And it doesn't mean that one in six will never have children. It just means that one in six have had difficulty. It's important to see that you're not alone. Because one of the first things you think when you go through this is that you are alone. You look around the church and you see couples with children and you see people who got married the same time as you and now they have two. You start to feel shame, this sense of inadequacy, this sense that maybe you failed on some level, even though you didn't fail. <laughs> you had nothing to do with this. It's not your fault. At the diocesan level, anything you do will be appreciated. Here's Emily. There have been some dioceses that have contacted me because they're trying to do something for couples who are struggling with fertility. But most dioceses don't have any sort of support group in place. Most priests never preach about infertility or why IVF or IUI aren't moral choices for Catholics. This is a cross that a lot of people suffer with in silence. And so people aren't clamoring for more support. And that means that a lot of people are left going unsupported. And Connie. The Family Life Office of the Archdiocese puts on a day of prayer for couples experiencing infertility and miscarriage. So that's called a day of hope and healing. And what it is, is there's a mass, there's some talks. Uh, last year we had a panel discussion. So there are three different couples dealing with three different experiences and some time to talk and meet with other people experiencing this. And they provided lunch, which is always great. <laughs> so, so I was involved on the planning committee for that to help find people. 
anytime anyone hears about it who's dealing with this, they're very excited. The response from the infertility community is huge. You know, they're just like, wow, somebody hears us. And anytime any diocese does something, one of the women from the infertility group is always sharing it to everyone else. And the blogosphere goes nuts with excitement because it feels so rare to us. Dioceses could also consider how they could help recruit or support NAPRO doctors in their area. Here's Emily. And I would say that is one of the areas where if the church really wanted to help couples who are struggling with fertility, find Catholic doctors in your town who would be interested in becoming NAPRO fellows. Send them to the Politics Institute. Recruit NAPRO doctors to your town. Mm-hmm. It's like with contraception. If the church just said, don't contracept, and there's the pill there, but they're not offering them all the different methods of natural family planning, that wouldn't work. (laughs) Like, you have to offer people a moral alternative. And there's just not enough of them out there right now. And Sarah. I don't want to go to anybody who's not a specifically pro-life gynecologist anymore because I just, there's no understanding of what people who are infertile go through. And it's almost seemed like a curse. You know, I've had doctors kind of shrug at me like, well, you get to have relations whenever you want, so what are you complaining about? Finally, just preach the cross of Jesus Christ. We started this episode with a quote from St. Jose Maria Escrivá. Someone asked him once, what meaning should Christian couples who are childless give to their married life? The saint said, quote, often God does not give children because he is asking them for something more. There is then no reason for feeling they are failures. If the married couple have interior life, they will understand that God is urging them to make their lives a generous Christian service, a different apostolate from the one they would have fulfilled with their children, but an equally marvelous one. God, who always rewards, will fill with a deep joy those souls who have had the generous humility of not thinking of themselves. End quote. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.